Okay, so um, happy Friday, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to have you all here. Um, so I'm very excited to have Justin Richards here with us today. Uh, Dr. Richards is going to be talking about multimodal analgesia in the intensive care unit. Um, Dr. Richards is an assistant professor of medicine. I'm sorry, an assistant professor of anesthesiology here uh, at the University of Maryland. Um, he did his training in anesthesia and then went on to do his fellowship in uh, critical care through anesthesia. Um, and I am delighted to have him here with us today. So Dr. Richards, without further ado, please take it away. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Naveen, uh, for, uh, for allowing me to talk with you all this, uh, this afternoon about a topic that uh, I, I think we've always realized it's, it's been important uh, and kind of a cornerstone of at least intensive care medicine with regards to analgesia, sedation, and, and management of the neurologic system, if you will. Uh, but certainly, certainly the last five to 10 years with, uh, with a lot of uh, attention, discussion, uh, and momentum and, and kind of moving away from an opioid-based uh, analgesia regimen, um, not only really in critical care, but kind of throughout medicine and, and how that uh, has now translated into the intensive care unit um, and what our priorities, what our goals are, and, and ultimately what the, uh, the evidence shows to kind of guide us how, how best to do this. Um, and so I have no financial conflicts of interest related to this talk and the objectives really to describe the impact of, of multimodal analgesia in the intensive care units and uh, discuss some of the pharmacologic options we have for multimodal analgesia. Um, and then really to address the gaps in the literature kind of concluding it uh, with regard to multimodal analgesia. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that uh, we know a lot about certain things when it comes to these medications. We know a lot about what our goals are, but how can we, uh, and we know a lot about it in different areas of medicine, and how can we sometimes uh, extrapolate that and utilize it in, uh, in our specific environments. And so when it comes to really the specifics with regard to multimodal analgesia that I wanna discuss, they're gonna include acetaminophen, lidocaine, uh, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, ketamine, gabapentinoids, dexmedetomidine, and discuss a little bit about methadone. And by no means is this list all inclusive, but I, I kind of came up with this and, and helped the goals designed, if you will, based really on the, the Society of Critical Care Medicine's uh, clinical practice guidelines for the uh, prevention and management of pain, agitation, sedation, delirium, and immobility in the intensive care unit, and these specifically for, for adult patients. Um, and so a lot of, at least the background and organization of this I got from those guidelines with regard to how I wanted to at least address this to a group of, uh, of critical care folks and how I think we should think about it uh, in the intensive care unit. Uh, and, and part of this is also uh, going through the literature and really showing what, what kind of supports what we do. And so with that in mind, I at least want to provide a few more disclosures at least to explain my perspective and from where uh, I'm coming when I at least uh, share, here's the way I think about things, here's the way I try to incorporate it at least into, uh, into our practice in the ICU. And so the first of those is, is I'm an anesthesiologist. And so there's the perspective of that of what we do in the operating room and perioperatively in terms of, of managing analgesia. So that's one perspective. The, uh, the other perspective is that I also work a lot with surgical patients uh, in the surgical intensive care unit and or in the trauma intensive care unit, and then also in the operating room and, and, and post anesthetic care unit where that in a way kind of turns itself into an intensive care unit at times, 
um, but we their priorities and um, and goals we have there, at least in terms of getting folks to progress through their their medical care. And the last part of these being is again, I also work a lot with trauma patients, and that's a really specific population. I think when it comes to the types of analgesia needs that they have, based on either their their injuries, what's going on with them in the intensive care unit, what further operations they have, and also their comorbidities. But in the end, I think it's really important to to recognize when it, when it comes to this topic is we're all taking care of critically ill patients, and so. While not every critical, critically ill patient is the same, there's some similarities. And I think that there are also kind of some underlying similar themes and goals with regard to, to how we can approach this, but also tailor it potentially to those specific populations of, uh, of critical care patients. But again, going back to the, uh, the SCCM guidelines of those are being addressed for the critical care population at large. And, and that comes back to you know, one of my goals to, to kind of wrap things up with this is really to kind of go into some, at least what the literature and what the literature tells us in terms of supporting uh, our practice and specifically the guidelines and, and where the evidence for those guidelines comes from and, uh, and how we can use that to back up what we do and or potentially a lot of times what we have to do is extrapolate what we know in certain other populations or in certain other groups of patients to the patients we're potentially taking care of. And the first question that I'll be honest, I really didn't have a great appreciation for during training and even, even, uh, even now at times, when we think, well, how do we measure pain? How do we measure pain in the operating room? Again, I'll come from that perspective where we don't have people who are able to verbalize things. We don't have um, the same physiologic markers to potentially go off of when it comes to respiratory rate in patients who are uh, chemically paralyzed. Uh, patients who are really managing their hemodynamics, we don't have markers of either heart rate or blood pressure. So how do we measure pain? And in the intensive care unit, one of the things I've, I've often noticed is that uh, you hear on rounds, the discussion uh, either from the nurse or the uh, trainees uh, describing overnight events or whatnot, beginning with a statement, well, I went up on the analgesic, whether it's fentanyl or sedation, dexmedetomidine, I went up on that because, well, the patient looked uncomfortable uh, or the patient won't stop moving. Or I went up on their pain medication because, well, I'm just in there every five minutes and I can't do that. Or oh, this patient's really hypertensive. And so these are really non-specific markers for analgesia. And it, it can, again, comes back to the question, well, what are we using to measure amounts of pain and how are we using that to guide our analgesia? And this is something that the SCCM guidelines really discuss from the beginning is, well, we need to have a, a reliable and consistent measure to guide your analgesia therapy. And they say, and, and it seems fairly obvious, but self-reported scores of pain scores, whether it's a visual analog score uh, or a numerical rating score, are most preferable and desirable. And they're, they're very reliable and, and at least reproducible for each patient, but it's being able to go off of the patient's subjective quantification and description of their pain. And so this is obviously most preferable uh, and most ideal, but the reality is an intensive care unit with patients who are either uh, sedated, mechanically ventilated, potentially can't talk to us, can't communicate with us, 
being able to get those self-reported pain scores not always feasible or easy. And so there are other scoring systems that exist and, and two of the most commonly used ones, the behavioral assessment tool, um, being a behavioral pain score. And then there's also the uh, critical care uh, pain observation tool. And both those are, are very, very similar. The behavioral pain score really has kind of three areas in which you're scoring. Uh, and that's the facial expression, upper limbs, and in compliance with ventilation. The uh, critical care pain observation tool has four, and honestly, it's just easier for me to remember the, the three of the behavioral pain score. But if you're able to at least observe, categorize, and, and score patients based on these uh, indices, it's fairly reliable in terms of being able to quantify their, their level of pain and their adequacy of analgesia. When it comes to the behavioral pain score, it's, uh, it's been demonstrated that uh, a total pain score, again, based off of, of these indices, but a pain score less than four, fairly reliable to mean that the patient doesn't have much pain. Um, a pain score of four to five is mild pain and, and a six or greater, anything above five, is considered unacceptable pain. So again, the, the whole point being is, is having markers to and scoring systems to guide your analgesia therapy and really be able to, to help you communicate and quantify, well, this is why we're making uh, adjustments or initiating different types of, of analgesia treatment. And before getting into the pain pathophysiology, just briefly, they're really, at least in the intensive care unit, it comes down to two goals with regard to uh, analgesia and uh, pain treatment. Uh, and I say pain and sedation. And, because there's uh, the description of a, um, an analgesia-based sedation. And while admittedly not talking too much about sedation, this is just really analgesia, but they do kind of interact together. They do share some, uh, some common um, goals and at times medications. But really the goal now, and at least what, what's being discussed and, and, and driven home is, is having an analgesia-based approach to not only pain, comfort analgesia, but also sedation. So an analgesia-based approach. And what that's demonstrated is that by using analgesics to achieve those goals of not only comfort, but patient interaction and, and arousability and awakeness level, is that we're actually decreasing the overall amounts of sedation these folks are getting. And the less sedation that they have and that they're being administered, we know they tend to have some improved outcomes, at least when it comes to either delirium and or time on the mechanical ventilator and ultimately liberation from, um, from intubation. Um, and in the end, these patients are able to at least express some, uh, some greater levels of, uh, of patient comfort. So it's having that analgesia-based uh, approach to analgesia and sedation. So if we think about really what are some of the basic pathophysiologic principles of pain. And we think about the peripheral nerve system, really uh, a peripheral nerve with your nerve axon and the nerve endings, which, which are sensing the, the uh, stimuli, uh, going all the way to the dorsal root ganglion and into the, uh, the spinal column. There are different areas in that peripheral nervous system where our analgesics can have an effect. And really that's just the peripheral nervous system. And you can think of the central nervous system with the brain, the spinal column, there are multiple different pathways and multiple different sites of action towards which analgesics may have an effect. And that's really kind of where it comes down to now with the idea of multimodal analgesia, 
with where can we use these different pathways? Where can we use potentially different receptors to try and target different forms of pain, different areas of pain, uh, and to optimize pain control based on the different areas in the peripheral and central nervous system where these medications can have an effect. And so the first, I'll say, multimodal analgesic that, uh, that I'll discuss is acetaminophen or Tylenol, uh, a very really common medication, one that's used on uh, outpatient basis, certainly something that we use frequently now inpatient. It seems folks are always getting uh, acetaminophen. The mechanism really don't understand all that entirely well. Uh, there's some suspicion that uh, there's some relationship with the cyclooxygenase pathway uh, and even potentially some serotonergic pathways, but really not entirely sure what the exact mechanism of action with acetaminophen is. But it's an antipyretic, used as an antipyretic, and used as an analgesic. And the critical care medicine uh, guidelines recommendations were a conditional recommendation, con conditional suggestion to use acetaminophen, but recognizing there was a very low quality of evidence. And really the evidence uh, mentioned in the SCC guidelines were two studies, uh, one in cardiac surgery, one in post-operative ICU patients, but they showed that uh, in the cardiac surgery patients, there was a decrease in pain scores, but only up to 24 hours post-operatively. And there was no difference in overall opioid consumption. Um, and, and that includes a more recent study that uh, came out uh, after the, uh, the guidelines had, uh, had been assembled. And in the study in post-operative ICU patients, again, what they saw were decreases in pain scores only at 24 hours. Patients who had acetaminophen received less opioids and they had a shorter time to extubation. And it was in this group of patients. However, if you think about one of the limitations, these were post-operative ICU patients, but they only included folks who they did not think were gonna be in the intensive care unit for more than 28 hours. So a really select group of patients, but at least what we, we can kind of take away in the intensive care unit with acetaminophen is uh, the likelihood of having better pain scores, but really only for 24 hours postoperatively. And now there's also the question of, we have IV acetaminophen. Let's give everybody IV acetaminophen. It's something we do fairly commonly in the operating room, uh, only because using enteric access is a little bit more difficult, not impossible but it's easier for us to administer. And back a couple of years ago, uh, it was published from a, a retrospective database, uh, but a really large database nonetheless in patients with a cholecystectomy, comparing uh, IV and uh, oral acetaminophen. And what they observed is there was no significant difference in the post-operative morphine equivalents. Um, and it, it really kind of brought into question is, is there uh, a benefit of giving IV acetaminophen, especially when the cost is, uh, significantly higher than, uh, than oral acetaminophen. And that's something that here we were doing very, very commonly of giving almost every, every patient in the operating room IV acetaminophen and it, it has become much less common um, really because of the, the cost related to it. Uh, and the fact that we haven't uh, been able to at least document any significantly different outcomes um, regarding folks who had uh, either IV or, or oral Tylenol. So if you're able to give oral Tylenol, at least from a, a overall resource utilization, uh, you're probably better off because uh, there's not gonna be much of a, a difference in, uh, in at least uh, opioid, opioid consumption. 
And when it comes to dosing, um, what's most commonly recommended and a lot of different institutions have varying protocols when it comes to some of their multimodal, perioperative multimodal analgesic regimens. Basically one gram every six hours and that gives you four grams of uh, acetaminophen daily, which is at least the uh, uh, manufacturer's upper limit. Um, really in folks who are older, the elderly patients, they need less dosing in terms of, uh, of their, their dosing regimen and um, uh, leaving it at the, we usually do about 650 milligrams um, every, uh, every uh, six hours, four times a day. One of the, uh, the patient populations that uh, would seem to be kind of contraindicated to, uh, to get acetaminophen would be liver, liver injury, liver transplant, folks with hepatic uh, insufficiency. But in fact, acetaminophen postoperatively has been studied in, in liver transplants successfully. Not something that's being done fairly commonly, I would say, but really what it involves is just paying attention to your dosing and paying attention to your liver function tests. And it's something we do actually in trauma patients. Um, I'd say more often than not, really all depends upon the severity of injury, the severity of the liver injury. And the reality is most of these are non-operative injuries. They heal on their own, but we will follow their liver function studies. And as long as they're continuing to decrease and we're dosing at a lower uh, range on the one gram every six hours, I think acetaminophen uh, in, in those folks is, is reasonable. Um, again, as long as you're following your dosing and, uh, and following your liver function. The, uh, the next medication I kind of wanted to, to address is uh, intravenous lidocaine. Um, and as a medication, very similar to, if not exactly like the uh, lidocaine, we'll give for you know, subcutaneous injections, either to topicalize um, the skin before a procedure, whether it's suturing, whether it's placing a central line, a chest tube. Um, but this is administered uh, intravenous, uh, obviously, instead of subcutaneously. And it's a local anesthetic. Uh, it, it has its uh, mechanism of action, uh, the neuronal sodium channels blocking the sodium uh, conduction and depolarize, excuse me, blocking the depolarization of the neuronal cells. But there's also uh, a, a decent amount of evidence and a lot of interest in the, uh, the anti-inflammatory effects of intravenous lidocaine by its action on the uh, polymorphonuclear sites. And really what it's doing is it's inhibiting uh, the priming response of the polymorphonuclear sites and the release of uh, reactive oxygen species. So it's stopping that pro-inflammatory cascade that goes on with tissue injury. And, and what that's uh, been observed to be helpful in is in a lot of this kind of post-operative um, systemic inflammatory response state after a lot of tissue injury, after a lot of large operations, you don't have a lot of that tissue injury. You don't have that uh, significant inflammation such that organ function may be a little bit more preserved. So again, very interesting when it comes to some of the uh, basic science aspects of, of lidocaine. But the reality is uh, the SDCM guidelines and recommendations actually recommend against routine administration for intravenous lidocaine in critically ill patients. And they admit that this is a very low quality of evidence. Um, and one of the reasons I think this is, and I think in terms of being able to, to take away of, of why IV lidocaine is not recommended, is it something we should be really doing in a lot of ICU patients, is that the evidence we have for it perioperatively, and, and I emphasize perioperatively, is the best benefit we've seen 
is in patients with uh, abdominal operations. And that's where we've observed the, uh, the biggest improvement in pain scores. And again, these are pain scores only out to 24 hours, very similar to acetaminophen. And all these other operations, all these other patients where intravenous lidocaine has been looked at, breast operations, um, uh, extremity operations, arthroscopy, specifically cardiac surgery, thoracic surgery, we haven't observed the same uh, benefit in outcome as has been observed in abdominal operations. So again, looking at a very, very specific group of patients and certainly doesn't apply to all or a majority of critically ill patients. But I think, and I think it's, it can be a very valuable adjunct in uh, post-operative critical, critically ill patients uh, with significant pain burden, uh, especially in that immediate uh, post-operative period for a couple of days. And how this is administered uh, intravenously is at a dose of one and a half to two milligrams per kilogram per hour. Here, at least at uh, University of Maryland, it's done by our acute pain medicine service. And um, really what we've seen from the data is that you need to get up to that dose of almost two milligrams per kilogram to per hour to see those benefits uh, with a reduction in pain scores out to, to 24 hours. Some of the contraindications for lidocaine are patients with significant arrhythmias uh, and patients with, uh, with renal diseases. It's uh, excreted in the, uh, or excreted by the kidneys. So my takeaway and, and, and message, if you will, for at least intravenous lidocaine is, I certainly agree with the recommendations of it not being strongly recommended for use in general critically ill patients, because I don't think at least the data is showing a, a huge obvious benefit in a majority of critically ill patients. It's just in that select group of, I'll say, post-operative abdominal operations. We will use this a lot in the operating room for some operations, uh, abdominal operations, extremity operations, folks with a lot of pain. Uh, but that's certainly not uh, a, a caution against extrapolating that to all critically ill patients. So that's, uh, that's intravenous lidocaine. And uh, the other kind of point I'll make about this is uh, talking about the uh, potential uh, anti-inflammatory uh, effects of uh, intravenous lidocaine being able to uh, minimize the uh, end organ effects of inflammation um, but the, the benefit that's been observed with uh, reducing the uh, incidence of ileus, uh, being the, the time to pass uh, first flatus is, is decreased. Uh, folks being able to kind of get around, mobilize a, uh, a little bit more quickly. Um, and at least perioperatively when it comes to recovery, um, minimizing the incidence of uh, post-operative nausea and vomiting and, uh, and goal being to, to get folks out of the recovery area as a, uh, as soon as possible. But again, this is, is specified just to the, uh, the perioperative, postoperative population. And so the next group of medications, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, again, very common. We see these all the time. Many of us have probably uh, taken these uh, at home on a uh, um, outpatient basis. I probably take it at least twice a week uh, when I wake up with a sore back, for example. Um, but the, the mechanism being it's inhibition of it, the cyclooxygenase enzyme, or the, the COX-1 specific COX-2 inhibitors. And the SCCM guidelines are a specific recommendation against the routine of, uh, excuse me, routine use of NSAIDs. And again, they, they say this is a low quality of evidence. 
And so I mentioned NSAIDs because it's it's something that not only similar to lidocaine that uh, that we're using a lot of in the operating room for folks because we look at it as another very valuable multimodal analgesic, but it's something that we use quite frequently in the um, the trauma intensive care units and in trauma patients. And it's almost kind of one of those reflexive medications that, that we put folks on to, uh, to get them on a multimodal analgesic pathway. And as I was preparing this, thinking about how often we use this, and yet it's recommended against routine use by the SCCM guidelines, wondering, okay, well, why do we even use it? And what's the, what's the evidence for it? Should we be using it? Uh, or are there certain patients of where it might be value? Again, we, we see these all, all over the place in the, um, in the grocery store. Uh, and Ketorolac, to be perfectly honest, one of my favorite uh, medications for a lot of the, the operations we're doing for, for our trauma patients. But in thinking about what these medications are doing, their side effect profile is, is kind of wide. And you think about where they can have some adverse effects, be it the gastrointestinal system, the cardiovascular system, uh, gastrointestinal system specifically being with, uh, with gastrointestinal ulcer, um, cardiovascular disease with regard to uh, uh, myocardial infarction uh, and some uh, the activity of, uh, uh, on the platelets, um, renal disease uh, inducing potentially acute kidney injury, then again, hematologic effects uh, when it comes to platelet inhibition. And uh, probably one of the, the biggest things that always gets talked about with trauma patients uh, or anybody who's having an orthopedic operation is, oh, we can't give these to patients with a bo broken bone. Uh, the orthopedic surgeons will, will, will not be happy and, and have a problem with that. So again, a very, very wide side effect profile, which um, can have some concerning side effects depending on the patient. But why I wanted to bring this up was really to at least provide uh, a little bit of an update, but more so to kind of give you a frame of reference of where we've come with our understanding of, of NSAIDs and where there might be a value in specific critically ill populations, and I'll say the, the trauma population. And that goes back to the, uh, the statement of, well, we can't use these in patients with, with broken bones. Um, their bones won't heal, they'll have a non-union, and then the orthopedic surgeons won't be happy. Well, this was, these were actually the uh, clinical practice guidelines from a couple of years ago from the Orthopedic Trauma Association. And, and this was their table of recommended analgesic regimens for uh, what they described a complex, uh, major musculoskeletal injuries, major musculoskeletal operations. And if you look on the, the far right column for their non-opioid recommendations, an overwhelming majority of these out to five weeks end up being an NSAID. Either Ketorolac, Ibuprofen, continuing NSAIDs all the way out to, to week five as necessary. And so the orthopedic surgeons actually admit that NSAIDs are perfectly fine in patients with broken bones. In fact, they're potentially beneficial and they're desirable as a non-opioid multimodal analgesic approach. So uh, you all may see these uh, in, in the trauma intensive care unit um, in, in patients who have had major extremity injuries. NSAIDs in orthopedic trauma patients with broken bones are perfectly fine. The problem comes uh, out to of, of when you're using them at very high doses for an extended period of time. And typically what we'll end up doing with these folks is three to five days of uh, scheduled Ketorolac and then adding uh, an ibuprofen um, 
uh, or another uh, NSAID for uh, a PRN use as, uh, as necessary. When it comes to some of the other side effects, um, and getting back to, to gastrointestinal, again, it's, it's large doses, uh, empty stomachs, if you will, um, for prolonged periods of time. Uh, and uh, at least minimize, try and minimize that, that risk and side effect profile um, by, uh, by using appropriate doses for, for specified uh, uh, time windows. Same with renal disease uh, in folks who have uh, an acute kidney injury or elderly folks who we see at, at risk of acute kidney injury are hypotensive folks, folks with, with a lot of bleeding uh, who are we're concerned about hypo, uh, hypotension-induced uh, acute kidney injury. I, I think it's certainly reasonable to, uh, to not be giving those folks NSAIDs. Same with folks who, who have bleeding risks, whether it's an upper gastrointestinal uh, bleed or potentially an intracranial bleed. Um, we know at least from the, uh, the neurologic literature that uh, aspirin in and of itself can be uh, beneficial in some, uh, some neuro critically ill neurosurgery, excuse me, let me rephrase that, some of the neurocritical care population um, with regard to uh, stroke prevention. However, there is a higher bleeding risk and whether or not that bleeding risk, the antiplatelet uh, effect of aspirin is the same as Ketorlac, I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure and if we know that. Uh, but I think that risk certainly exists for NSAIDs. And if we have other options, I think it's very reasonable and appropriate to be looking at other options uh, when the, the side effect profile of, of these NSAIDs is, uh, is quite large. So while we use this uh, in certain, criti uh, certain critically ill patients, when it comes to NSAIDs, I, I think I, my, my statement would be, and I think we need to be very cautious in how we're using these in critically ill patients. Because uh, by no means something that is uh, likely used in a general intensive care unit population. Uh, and I think there can be significant side effects if used uh, without significant thought uh, and not taken into consideration either other comorbidities or um, uh, other reasons why, uh, why these patients are, are as sick as they are. So something you're very, I think, unlikely to see in a lot of general uh, intensive care units, whether it's a medical ICU or neuro uh, ICU, and even some of the surgical uh, intensive care units. But uh, there are options, and I, uh, I emphasize and wanted to mention this for the option of, they are certainly appropriate in uh, patients with, with broken bones. The next group uh, of multimodal analgesics, the gabapentinoids, this including uh, gabapentin and pregabalin, they exert their effects on the uh, voltage-gated calcium channels, and uh, they have various sites of effect. When you think about the kind of central and, uh, and peripheral nervous system, centrally, uh, they can work not only in the brain and in the spinal cord, the uh, the ascending, but also the descending inhibitory pathways of uh, of pain modulation and uh, uh, pain communication. But specifically, these voltage-gated calcium channels. If you take a, a look here on the kind of box on the right, these calcium channels, which allow the influx of calcium, the release of neurotransmitters onto the postsynaptic neuron uh, to, uh, to be able to transmit painful stimuli and painful information, this blockage of the calcium channels then prevents the transmission of pain. This is, is at least uh, one of the, the mechanisms of gabapentin, excuse me, the gabapentinoids, gabapentin and pregabalin. They also work by inhibiting 
the transmission of pain. So there's a descending inhibitory pathway in the central nervous system, which actually then sends out norepinephrine and that norepinephrine prevents the transmission of, uh, again, neurostimulation through the, uh, through the central nervous system. So the gabapentinoids kind of have a, a multifactorial effect, but at least most, uh, most predominantly and most commonly through those voltage-gated calcium channels. And I mentioned that because a lot of times we, we say gabapentin, pregabalin, uh, all right, they're, they're working on the GABA receptors. In fact, they're not working on the GABA receptors. It's that voltage-gated calcium channel. And the uh, SCCM guidelines have a recommendation for using gabapentin and, and pregabalin in critically ill patients with neuropathic pain. And uh, as I was, even the first time I, I read the guidelines and, and even in preparing this, going through it, and I have my, my personal thoughts about the, the gabapentinoids, which, which we'll get to, um, but also kind of trying to, to gain a grasp on what, is the, what are the recommendations and what does the literature show? And that this was such a strong recommendation with a moderate quality of evidence. But the more I would go back and read it is specifically for patients in neuro, with neuropathic pain. Now, the gabapentinoids, gabapentin and pregabalin, work through similar mechanisms, both of them. And at least the evidence that we have from a perioperative perspective suggests that gabapentin itself will reduce overall uh, postoperative pain scores. Uh, but the, the evidence that we have for pregabalin, and admittedly it's a little bit, uh, it, it's not quite as robust, excuse me, as, as gabapentin. Pregabalin reduces opioid consumption, but has not been demonstrated to uh, have a significant difference in pain scores. And so well, the gabapentinoids seem to, uh, again, not only come with a fairly strong recommendation, uh, but have a, a very encouraging effect on, on postoperative pain. They do have some side effects. Uh, and those being sedation, dizziness, especially in older folks, um, uh, they would be contraindicated and folks with renal impairment and, uh, and folks with chronic kidney disease needing to be used at a, a significantly smaller dose, as is uh, kind of highlighted here by this table um, in this slide right here in the middle. And it just kind of shows the, the different dosing ranges for folks with uh, different uh, levels of, of kidney function. But that's something that needs to be taken into significant consideration when, uh, when administering this. And so I'll make kind of two points when it comes to the gabapentinoids, and this is putting in a little bit of my opinion, but also what I take away from the literature when it comes to gabapentin is uh, from a post-operative neuropathic pain perspective, I think it can be very valuable. And again, that's post-operative neuropathic pain. That's folks who are saying, I have this just kind of burning sensation in either my extremity, my abdomen, it feels like it's on fire. This isn't the, I feel like I'm being stabbed, really sharp, pointy, um, uh, painful sensations. It's really that dull burning pain, the neuropathic pain where the gabapentinoids are beneficial. And the dose can be really important too. At least what we've seen from a, a perioperative standpoint is 
needing doses uh, along the lines of a, a single dose of 900 milligrams to 1200 milligrams to have an effect on post-operative pain. Now, not suggesting to dose critically ill patients, all critically ill patients with uh, 1200 milligrams three times a day of, of gabapentin. Uh, but if you're really trying to address that neuropathic pain, you may need much higher doses than where we typically start. Oftentimes it'll be 100 to 300 milligrams three times a day, which may be appropriate in somebody with renal dysfunction, a critically ill patient with renal dysfunction, uh, or a, an older critically ill patient. But I think it's, it's really important to not only take into consideration what's their description of pain, what are their other comorbidities and organ function, and then what's their age. And recognizing that one of the side effects for these uh, medications may, is, is sedation. And I'll be honest, a lot of times in talking to folks who, who've been on gabapentin, it seems that they at least have a, a better uh, response to pain. But when you start actually really getting into it to them, uh, getting into their description of, of how they felt, they said, I just felt sleepy, tired all the time. And that's why I didn't feel like I was in pain. And this kind of hit home to us, at least from an anesthesiology standpoint, back uh, back last summer when there was a, a large meta-analysis looking at uh, the gabapentinoids. Again, these were studies looking at whether it was gabapentin or pregabalin and uh, thousands of patients. And what they observed was there was a non-clinically significant difference in pain scores at six hours, 12 hours, and, and 24 hours. And then once you got to uh, 72 hours, there were no differences in pain scores. Again, these were uh, post-operative patients, not all of them critically ill. So I you think we have to interpret that in the context of, of which it's presented. Um, and we don't necessarily know the indications for either gabapentin or pregabalin in these, uh, in these patients who were studied. We presume it was for pain, but was it really for that neuropathic pain? The, uh, the next medication, uh, which might be some of our favorite medication, is uh, ketamine. And this is a fencycline derivative. It uh, has its mechanism of action uh, at the uh, NMDA uh, receptor. It's an NMDA antagonist. And I put here, I, a lot of times uh, here, it's kind of referred to as the greatest cure for all things pain. And it's emphasized, this is a great medication for pain. We should use it for all things pain, all emergency care, uh, acute care um, patients with pain. Because one of the advantages is it keeps patients ventilating spontaneously. Uh, I'm not sure either one of those are entirely true all the time. And I'll get into that in just a moment. But the uh, SCCM guidelines recommend that low dose ketamine may be a valuable adjunct to reduce opioid consumption. And they also recognize this as a very low quality of evidence. And so from a mechanistic standpoint, ketamine works at, again, the NMDA receptor. And over here on the left, Here's your NMDA receptor. This is an NMDA receptor antagonist. So by antagonizing the NMDA receptor, we have a decreased release of the excitatory uh, amino acid glutamate. And ultimately we have a decrease in sense central sensitization to pain. We have a decrease in opioid tolerance and a decrease in the opioid induced hyperalgesia. These are all things that really opioids are doing in addition to being opioid receptor agonists. But ketamine is offering us really a different pathway to help kind of modulate some of those adverse effects of the opioids. And so what we know about ketamine in critically ill patients, again, it's a very limited amount of evidence and in really only a couple studies, 
But ketamine uh, in the intensive care unit demonstrated less opioid consumption, but no difference in pain scores over 48 hours. And these were after abdominal operations. Uh, and then more recently, there was no difference in opioid consumption in mechanically ventilated intensive care unit patients. So again, we come back to, okay, we're reducing opioid consumption, but we really might not be changing much of, of those uh, patient reported pain scores. And one of the important parts to realize when it comes to ketamine dosing, and specifically with how they're mentioned in the, uh, the SCCM guidelines, is they, they refer to sub-anesthetic dosing. Ketamine has a wide range of, of dosing, from the sub-anesthetic dosing to all the way to general anesthetic dosing. And really, it's the sub-anesthetic dosing that I, I think is valuable, and I think that can provide us with some benefit in these patients. And this is administered intravenously, but it's along the lines of 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour, or somewhere along the lines of three to five micrograms per kilogram per minute. And in fact, this was the dosing used in uh, both of these studies that, that I've discussed uh, just previously. And so again, sub-anesthetic dosing. Once you start moving above a half milligram per kilogram per hour, you're getting outside of that range of sub-anesthetic dosing and you're moving closer to a general anesthetic dosing of ketamine. And that's where you start seeing more of the side effects. So one of the, the references that I, I go back to when it comes to how do I, I think we should best use ketamine, at least intraoperatively, perioperatively, and how we can translate that to the intensive care unit is uh, from the Regional Anesthesia and uh, Pain Medicine Guidelines on perioperative ketamine use. And, and they describe the indications for really acute severe postoperative pain for abdominal and thoracic operations, and then the severe extremity injuries, again, those, those severe multi, multiply injured orthopedic trauma patients. Uh, there's also an indication in patients with opioid tolerance who have now acute pain, and also in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. One of the concerns and, and challenges we have with patients with sleep apnea, especially postoperatively, is how do we manage their pain without depressing their respiratory drive uh, and also making them more sedated and potentially uh, really increasing their risk for obstruction, further hypoxia and, and hypercardia. And I think ketamine can again be a valuable adjunct to, uh, to patients with obstructive sleep apnea who are having uh, severe painful operations. This would include a lot of our uh, soft tissue patients, those folks who have large, large wounds, they're inflamed wounds, and a lot of these folks also have other comorbidities such as obesity, uh, which then also puts them at risk for, uh, for sleep apnea. And so what about some of the contraindications for ketamine? And specifically, I list sub-anesthetic ketamine. I mean, ketamine is uh, is very attractive to, to a lot of people, but also is kind of derided by a number of folks too because of the, the potential for adverse um, complications. Those things being cardiovascular disease, ketamine acts as a sympathomimetic and cause hypertension, tachycardia. And so folks with cardiovascular disease, it would seem to be contraindicated. It can increase intracranial pressure. Folks with intracranial hypertension, I think ketamine is a contraindication and same with liver disease because ketamine is metabolized in the, uh, in the liver. The reality is, is sub-anesthetic ketamine, when it's been studied, has actually been studied in healthy patients for the most part without these um, uh, comorbidities. But in the end, when they've looked at the uh, complications in folks who are getting ketamine is there's really no increased risk of, of complications in folks who are receiving sub-anesthetic ketamine. And so overall, I would say, 
I think you have to be very thoughtful in these patients, not only with how you're dosing it, um, but also in, in into whom you're prescribing it. Because there may be some folks with severe coronary artery disease um, or uh, our severe cardiovascular dysfunction who ketamine just might not be the uh, the best option, or it may be actually a very good option to uh, to help you minimize any other uh, medications that either might vasodilate or cause those folks to be uh, hypertensive, excuse me, hypotensive. In the end, ultimately the dosing is, uh, is, is critically important. I think as long as you stay on that lower sub-anesthetic dosing range, um, I think ketamine is a very, very reasonable and valuable option in a lot of critically ill patients with, um, with acute pain problems. The other point I really want to drive home is ketamine can still cause apnea. The statement that ketamine will keep patients ventilating spontaneously is not entirely true because if you use enough ketamine um, in folks or if you use a little ketamine in somebody who's hypovolemic and hypotensive, they will still be overly sedated. Folks who are overly sedated can still obstruct and they can potentially still have uh, aspiration events. So uh, ketamine is valuable in that patients may still ventilate spontaneously. They do have increased secretions. Um, but please, please keep in mind that patients who are on ketamine can still become apneic and can still obstruct and they still may need to be intubated. Uh, and that's all again, based on dosing, based on severity of illness and, uh, and comorbidities. I wanna mention briefly dexmedetomidine. This is a medication that's not in the SCCM guidelines. But there is some literature out there, and uh, at least uh, on the, the trauma side of things, we, uh, we are very heavy-handed with dexmedetomidine for, uh, for sedation and agitation control. But there is at least some intraoperative literature demonstrating that uh, the centrally acting effects of dexmedetomidine uh, potentially have some uh, associations with uh, reduced opioid uh, consumption. And that's specifically the activity of dexmedetomidine acting at the, uh, the locus ceruleus in the, uh, in the brain. And this was uh, actually reviewed in, uh, by a Cochrane review a couple years ago, uh, mentioning that perioperative dexmedetomidine for abdominal operations appeared to have opioid sparing effects. Excuse me, I may have misstated that earlier. Because uh, it has opioid sparing effects, but it does not have any differences uh, in pain scores. So I think there's some benefit of it uh, in folks with abdominal operations. We actually used it on somebody this morning with an abdominal operation to minimize uh, the opioid uh, the opioid effects. Uh, but the literature is, is very, very limited. There was one prospective randomized study about 15 years ago uh, in, in women who were having a, uh, a hysterectomy. And it showed that there was just less opioid consumption. So you may see a lot of dexmedetomidine. There might be an opioid sparing effect uh, as a multimodal analgesic there, but we're not entirely uh, convinced. I'm not entirely convinced. The, um, the last medication I want to talk about, and is actually my favorite, is, uh, is methadone. Um, and, and really, I'm mentioning this to kind of hopefully dispel some myths about methadone. There's a little bit of literature on it. Uh, but I think it's it's an option out there again in certain populations, but it, it comes with a lot of um, stereotypes, if you will, and that's that uh, a statement uh, on a review on, on methadone from a few years ago stated methadone is one of the most thoroughly studied, but persistently misunderstood drugs in medicine, and some of those misconceptions are methadone cannot be given to an opioid naive patient. 
uh, and that's not entirely true. Opioid naive patients can get methadone. If a patient receives methadone, then they will be on methadone long-term and therefore will be addicted to opioids. And that's not true either because patients can receive very short co courses of methadone, even a single dose of methadone, and it can be very effective. Uh, and the last statement I hear is methadone will increase the respiratory complications. And in fact, that's been studied intraoperatively and it's been shown that postoperatively, methadone does not increase your uh, risk for postoperative complications. So again, three misconceptions about methadone that, uh, that I hear commonly. I hear from other anesthesiologists, sometimes very commonly, but what we're starting to realize is methadone being a very old drug, a very well-studied drug, um, is a misunderstood and potentially valuable medication. And it works at the uh, mu opioid receptors, and it's also an NMDA antagonist, very similar to ketamine in that regard. It has a long duration of action, and uh, it's renally eliminated. So it, care needs to be taken in folks with uh, renal disease. What we know about methadone, and I go so far as to say is these are uh, smaller numbered studies uh, in terms of population, but it's been the most consistent uh, medication to not only improve pain scores, but also decrease opioid uh, consumption. And again, there's no increase in respiratory complications. This is all from uh, a perioperative, intraoperative uh, patient population. So again, please interpret that as you will with caution um, in terms of, of being extrapolated. Uh, but I say of, of all the medications we've talked about, this is the one medication that has been consistently shown to decrease opioid consumption and uh, uh, decrease pain scores. Uh, one prospective randomized study within the last 10 years did look at methadone uh, in mechanically ventilated patients and found that uh, those folks with methadone had a decreased time to, uh, to extubation. So not encouraging you to, to go start using it in all of your intensive care units um, because I think there's a very, very, very limited uh, population. I get in discussions with the pharmacists about this all the time because they say, well, we can't give these folks methadone. They're opioid naive or they're not uh, um, uh, substance users. And that's, that's just not true. We can use it in, uh, in patients just use dosed appropriately. Uh, the last kind of multimodal analgesic approach I'll mention is, uh, is ICE. It's a very simple, um, very simple option, but also been studied quite effectively uh, in, in post-operative patients uh, in the intensive care units uh, and also just post-operative patients in general after a laparotomy. And those folks who got ICE had improved pain scores one in uh, three days uh, post-operatively in addition to lower opioid consumption. Um, and it seems some folks might see, uh, see it as a little silly. I don't want to put ice. I just had a big operation. Uh, I need something stronger than that. But ice is very, very, uh, I think, effective, um, not only for, for laparotomies, but potentially also for, uh, for major extremity injuries. And so all this talk about multimodal analgesia uh, is that there's this, this push to do it. There's an emphasis for multimodal analgesia. And therefore, it, it must be good. Um, and admittedly, the level of evidence, the amount of evidence on multimodal analgesia is just it's not out there. Uh, and there are a couple prospective randomized trials looking at multimodal analgesia in the intensive care unit, one specifically in cardiac surgery patients, and they, they showed there were better pain scores um, on certain days. But really after you know, those three days, that uh, there's really you know, no difference in pain scores and no difference in any other, uh, any other outcomes when it came to hospital length of stay or, or opioid consumption in, uh, in that study. Uh, 
a more recent, this was kind of a pro, prospective um, time interrupted uh, analysis in a trauma intensive care unit where they started a, a multimodal analgesic uh, protocol where they observed and then their, their post um, cohort, uh, post regimen cohort where they had already uh, established their multimodal regimen that there was reduced opioid consumption. These folks were receiving uh, decreased opioids if they were getting the, the multimodal analgesic regimen. And that's great, but there are really no other differences in any of the other outcomes. No difference in pain scores at day five, no difference in pain at hospital discharge, and really no significant difference in their, their high, uh, ICU uh, length of stay or, or uh, coma and delirium free days. And that's why I think that the multimodal analgesic approach is very valuable, but I think it's uh, in looking at the literature and understanding the literature, it's very important for us to ask, what are our goals with uh, these different medications? Just like with the gabapentin, uh, just like with gabapentin and the gabapentinoids, it's not necessarily a medication to use on everybody, but specifically those patients who we want to address neuropathic pain. Ketamine may be very, very valuable in those patients who have severe acute pain after multiple extremity injuries, but it's not necessarily the best medication for uh, the patients who, uh, who has no other significant pain problems, but we're having to, uh, to treat for, uh, for other agitation related events. Uh, so again, I, I emphasize being able to, to critically think what are your uh, indications for, for pain and analgesia? What are your, your scoring systems and your markers to guide your analgesia? And how are you choosing your medications based on the indication and the evidence for those specific medications? So admittedly, this was not an all-encompassing discussion on multimodal analgesics, and there are a lot of different uh, things I admittedly did not get into uh, for, for reasons of time, but also for, for content. But those being the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, steroids as an analgesic, acupuncture, which is becoming a talked about topic, uh, and the regional anesthetics. Uh, and also to notice that other than methadone, really didn't talk about any of the other opioids, but that being on purpose because at least the the approach to multimodal analgesics is being to, to minimize our usage of opioids uh, as much as possible. So uh, with that, again, thank you so much for the opportunity to get to talk with you. I'll talk with you all about this topic and, and share it with you.